You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. 
they shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules, and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird, or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 610 of this podcast. Today is May 5th, 2023, and a Friday, and I'm glad for it being a Friday this past weekend. The last weekend was very busy. It was busy with good things, don't get me wrong, but it was not particularly restful, and so this whole week we've been just a little extra tired. But yesterday was our son Daniel's birthday. Daniel Joseph Mullet turned 12 years old. Next week, my wife, Lauren, my lovely wife, Lauren Elizabeth Mullet, she has a birthday on the 12th. And so we're going to celebrate, I think, actually by going up to Estes Park, Colorado, and checking out a restaurant that is up there that is named after... The gal who wrote back in the 19th century, an English woman, wrote A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. So we're excited about that. There's a restaurant up there named after her and Mountain Jim. Bird and Jim is the name of the restaurant. And why not, right? Why not check it out? This is a place that has some history. And one of the things that struck both my wife and I as we read a Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, by Isabella Bird. One of the things that struck us was that she was most excited about visiting Estes Park, Colorado. And here it is, an hour's drive from us in Greeley. And we don't go up there nearly often enough. We've gotten a little bit soft, perhaps, with 
having things close. <laughs> we moved from Montana back in late 2019, right before COVID hit and everything was locked down. And maybe that was part of it is because we thought, well, why go up to Estes Park where people are going to be weird and everything's going to be closed or else they're going to tell you you have to wear a mask or else they're going to say, please social distance. Why go through all the trouble where people are going to be weird? That sounds stressful. We'll just stay home and work on getting settled here and we'll connect with people in this church that we're just getting started in, getting established in. It's really not been all that long ago. September this year will mark four years since we moved here. It feels like it's been an entire lifetime that we've been here, but that's a good thing. That's not, you know, time crawls slowly when you're just in misery. It's been a very full three and a half years at this point, but time has flown in another sense while we've been enjoying the sweet, sweet company of so many people we've come to know here in Colorado. It has been providential and there's no two ways about it. But Estes Park is lovely. It is beautiful. And I'm looking forward to getting away, getting up there, just Lauren and I to celebrate her birthday. Joelle Pringle, lovely college gal from our church who enjoys our children immensely and our children enjoy her immensely. She's going to come and hang out with our kiddos while we're up there. And Thank you again to Joelle for being so kind to our family and being kind to our children in particular. They love you dearly, and I know it's mutual, and we're really thankful for that. But there's a lot of relationships like that that we have at Summit View Community Church in Greeley Evans. I suppose technically it's an Evans address, but we say Greeley Evans. I say Greeley half the time because you really can't tell unless you're looking at signs or Google Maps, you really can't tell where one ends and the other begins. It's all the same to me. The point is that we're very thankful to be here and we're very thankful for what God has provided for us. And we also believe that God has us here for a purpose. At this time, we are supposed to be about our Father's business. And so we're glad to be. And we're glad to be edified and we're glad to be edifying others all together here and now. But let's take a step back. Let's go back to what I read for you at the top of this podcast episode. Leviticus chapter 20 is, if you have been listening regularly to each episode up to this point, it is covering again some ground that we've already talked about in terms of what are the punishments for various kinds of sexual immorality? What are the prohibitions on sexual immorality? Is it all the same? right? Do you have this umbrella term or phrase, sexual immorality, and then you just treat everything that falls into that category exactly the same? Well, the simple truth is that God tells us not to. God tells us not to. So if God tells us not to, if God is drawing distinctions, maybe we do need to be careful. Like I was having a conversation with my friend and pastor Paul Pavlik here Wednesday night after youth group. We do need to be careful drawing distinctions ourselves between various things. But we also need to be careful that we are drawing distinctions at least where God has said to draw distinctions. Now, I would say that we can go just a little bit farther if we have categories of sexual immorality that don't neatly fall into what we find in God's word. You're supposed to be able to extrapolate and solve for X 
on a broad range of subjects. So take, for instance, even not a biblical example, but just a U.S. political debate example, the Second Amendment, a common argument that you will hear from people who are for gun control. They're for expanding background checks and creating a gun registry and banning assault weapons and banning supposedly so-called high-capacity magazines and certain various accessories that you could put on a firearm. What you will very often hear from those types is that the men who wrote our Constitution and wrote the Second Amendment more specifically didn't have in mind that we would own these kinds of modern weapons, these weapons of war. And I would say that's not true because they didn't put restrictions on the most advanced weaponry of their day. And people will say, oh, you couldn't just own a cannon. It's like, well, that's not true though. You could. (laughs) And the express purpose of the Second Amendment is to keep our country free, to keep it free and prosperous the common citizenry should be able to keep and bear arms. Now, we can debate about what a well-regulated militia is. I am okay with having those debates, but a well-regulated militia is also not favorable in the eyes of the gun control folks, unless what we would mean by well-regulated militia is you just join the military. You join the military or you join a... Uh, local law enforcement uh, office, you you join a police force or the sheriff's department or something like that, and you are officially deputized. That's what they think a well-regulated militia should be. But they don't tend to like when common citizens form private militias. They consistently will portray that as dangerous and warped and perverse and dangerous, not just to the mental health, the emotional health, the social health of the community, but dangerous to our public safety. Who are these people who told them that they could do this? But never mind that for a moment. Just key in for the purposes of this example, this analogy, key in on the fact that you have firearms when the Second Amendment is written, firearms which are weapons of war, uh, you know, unequivocally. There's no doubt about it. You have Native Americans, some who are very friendly, some who are very hostile on the frontiers of this new nation, this new country. And as those frontiers are expanding westward, you have not just Native Americans, you also have rival nations that are colonizing North America right alongside the Brits and the Scots and the Irish. You have other countries which have an interest like France, for instance, like Spain, for instance. And when there is conflict, let's say, for instance, the armies of those foreign powers, those foreign empires, if you have conflict between those foreign powers and these peoples of the United States of America or explorers, expeditions, etc., coming into conflict with those foreign powers, They really do need to be able to, in a pinch, rally together and defend their communities and repulse uh, offensive operations for militaries, of militaries. And by that, we would mean the official armed forces of foreign powers. That's 
a very traditional thing that Americans have been for. That's a very traditional thing. Now, in the case of some very powerful tribes, let's say the Sioux on the plains, you have armies of thousands of warriors who pose a significant threat to European settlers, miners and loggers and farmers and ranchers and such like that. And you don't just say, well, hey, you know what? Call the police because that's not practical. But in our day, when it comes to modern communications, we say, oh, well, now people can call 911, whereas they couldn't do it before. So you don't need to have a firearm as long as you can call 911. And my response to that would be, but how long will it take for law enforcement to show up? And are you still with us when law enforcement shows up? Even if it's a more urban area, it could be tens of minutes when really a violent interaction is going to be over and done with in a fraction of that time. So you don't have time to wait for law enforcement to show up. You're going to have to be able to protect and defend your own innocent life and the innocence around you while you wait for law enforcement to show up. By all means, do call law enforcement, but in the meantime, deter the evildoer with the threat of violent force, deadly force. But we understand that we can extrapolate from what we have in the Constitution to our day, even if some things have been refreshed or updated or have seemed to take on a different expression, we understand there are categories and there are types that we put things into that we draw distinctions based on. Well, the same is true for the First Amendment when it comes to free speech. Somebody could say, well, the free speech bit, that was written into the Bill of Rights at a time when maybe you could print something with a printing press and you could pass it around or maybe you would be you know, standing in the middle of the town square and making an announcement. But the founders, they never envisioned that people would be able to create these high-powered memes and spread them all over the internet and spread false information the way that people are able to today. They never conceived of that. And I would say it's not the point whether they could have conceived of these things or whether they explicitly mentioned them in the Bill of Rights. The point is that this is communication and it can be meaningful to look back at types of communications and what the communications were for, what the intent was with certain kinds of communications and say, ah, okay, this is equivalent to that. This is equivalent to that. And this is equivalent to that. And thereby we will draw distinctions. The right to free speech, for instance, has never entailed in this country that you have the right to make murderous threats against some innocent person without consequence or openly advocate for treason. Hey, everybody, let's abolish our own government and let's join the French empire or let's join the Spanish empire. You know, that's never been okay. That's never been tolerable. If you start using your ability to speak freely to argue for overthrowing the U.S. government so you can join a foreign power, we rightly call that treasonous and seditious. But on the other hand, you have certainly robust political discourse where we are saying, hey, you know, we, we need to figure out on the one hand, uh, do we 
vote for this person or that person. We have multiple candidates to choose from and why or why not? Hey, there's some real problems with this guy's character or his track record or what he's proposing. We have to be able to critique those. We have to. And that can't be treasonous or seditious to say, hey, there's a bad smell or there is an evilness to what's being prescribed here, or there's just folly, right? This is just a bad idea. You have to be able to critique without that being called treasonous and seditious, whether you're critiquing in the middle of a town square in the 18th century, or whether you are critiquing on the internet in the 21st century. Those things translate, and the update in technology doesn't fundamentally change what at root is not just tolerable, but actually much needed, which is free and public discourse. But when it comes to sexual immorality, that has gotten to be a huge mess in our day where there is out and out pornography that is portrayed on TV or in books or in magazines or in movies or on the internet, and people have said, ah, this is protected free speech. We are protected in using our right to free speech to present these images and present these narratives and present these stories and present these whatever, fill in the blank, which are for the express purpose of exciting sexual interest. Do we say, well, it's on a computer screen, and so, you know, we don't know what to do with that. It's on a smartphone. We don't know what to do with that. It's on a TV screen. Oh, we don't know what to do with that. The founders of this country never envisioned that we would have these modern communications technologies with which to portray and present sexually explicit imagery and stories. So we don't know what to do with it. I, I guess we'll let it pass because they couldn't have imagined these things. So also, we don't go to the biblical text, like for instance, Leviticus chapter 20, and say, well, I don't see anything here about the internet. I don't see anything in here about computers or smartphones or TVs. And so I guess it doesn't matter. Whatever we do with those things must be okay to God, or we can't possibly know. You know, we don't do that. But on the other hand, I think it's very similar to the debate about gun control and the debate about regulating speech when it comes to sexual content or sexual material or even a passing reference to sexual activity. It is important to draw distinctions. It is important to say, okay, we don't put this all into one big monolithic mega category and say, well, any reference to sex at all is lewdness or perversion. Because if we did that, then we would say Leviticus 20 is inappropriate and we shouldn't read it. And how would that be? So we have to avoid being so broad in our definitions and in our condemnations and in our avoidances that we would even avoid reading God's word or allowing our children, for instance, to read God's word. We have to be very careful, and I'll explain this a little bit further, actually, as we go along, because at the end of this episode, I want to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, which I just finished up this morning. We watched the movie last night as a family, but I finished up the book this morning, and I have some thoughts for you. For sure, I want to review what 
kind of an impact that book has had on me personally in the past several days since I started reading it. But my point is, for the time being, before we get into To Kill a Mockingbird later, we see in God's word descriptions of various kinds of sexual immorality, which we are told these are all descriptions of sexual immorality. This is sexual immorality. This is sin. And yet, what we are not told is, here's a list, here's several bullet points. If somebody does any of these things, the prescription is the same, humanly speaking. The way you relate to that person is the same. No, that that is not what God commands. That's not his word. His word is, if they do this, 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 the punishment is such and such. If they do this, this, and this, well then, there's this other penalty. And if they do this and this and this, here's what you call that and here's what you do about it. But we see God drawing distinctions. And that's my point. And I think that's also important to bring to the question of pornography, for instance, in our day, or representations of the human body, or references to sexual activity in literature or in film or on TV shows, et cetera, et cetera we can say a lot of what is in the public discourse or in the eye of the public these days, in the ears of the public these days, we can say a lot of it. The majority of it, the vast majority of it is sexual immorality. But even there, we ought to draw some distinctions that have to do with circumstance and intention and the nature of things based on their relationship to one another. We must do that. So for instance, let's talk here about verses 1 through 9 in Leviticus 20, where we see punishment for child sacrifice. If anybody offers their child up to Molech, God says to kill them. And when we see offering up their child to Molech, we should understand this is human sacrifice. This is Someone taking their child, one of their children, and literally killing their child as a human sacrifice to a demon, to a false god. Offering them up, meaning killing them. And we should note, human sacrifice has existed in every non-Christian, pre-Christian, post-Christian, anti-Christian religion throughout all of human history. Everybody is engaged in a little bit of human sacrifice, some at an industrial scale, others on a case-by-case basis here and there. But what's interesting is we actually do see God saying, even if your community just knows that somebody in your midst has done this, it doesn't matter if they're a native or a sojourner, there's one law, one law. This is so abominable. It's so horrendous. Even if the community just knows and does nothing about it, that whole clan, that whole people can be cut off from the larger nation. The whole community is condemned if they do nothing about it, if they turn a blind eye to it, if they say, oh, well, that's so-and-so. You know them. They're a little weird, but it's none of our business. We don't get into that. We don't meddle in that. Such an option is not available according to God with regards to the sin of child sacrifice. Now, how would it be if in our day we said, well, we don't know what to do about abortion. We don't find the word abortion 
in the Bible. And so therefore, we don't know what to do about it. God must be okay with it because he didn't describe a modern-day abortion procedure for us. And the morning-after pill, we don't know what to do about that because we don't see the morning-after pill in the Bible. And to that, I would say, you need to be able to understand how to categorize things to draw meaningful conclusions and distinctions. For instance, if somebody is pregnant, and this actually happened to my wife here a few years ago, and it was very heartbreaking. It was very scary. It was very tragic. It really broke our hearts and left a mark on our family. But Lauren was pregnant, and she went in for an ultrasound, and she found out that this pregnancy was ectopic, which is to say that the implantation had not happened where it was supposed to happen, in the uterus. It had happened in the fallopian tube. And therefore, this pregnancy was not going to go full term. This baby was not going to make it. And so the urgent recommendation from the doctor was you need to get to the emergency room right away. You need to go today because you could rupture at any time. Your fallopian tube can't bear this growing baby. And at a certain point, that fallopian tube is just going to rupture. And if you don't have urgent medical care, you could die. And so I was on my way home. My wife calls me crying and I say, I'll be right there. And then it was just absolutely blindsiding. But we got home. She came home from the ultrasound. I came home from work. We asked our neighbors two houses down to watch the kids for us. I prayed with my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, and thanked him and his wife, Monica. And I got my wife to the hospital and signed in at the front desk just in time for her to collapse because she had ruptured. And next thing I know, before I could even really wrap my mind around what was happening, the staff there at UC Health is taking my wife back and she's undergoing emergency surgery. And she survived, thankfully, but it was extraordinarily scary and painful and traumatic. And you have people in this day who want to say, well, that's an abortion. And it's not. And we have to draw distinctions. Sometimes people package things together and they have the intention of being licensed to do what they ought not to do because they're going to package things that are permissible perhaps with things that are absolutely not permissible. And then they're banking on everybody saying, because of the permissible things that are in the mix, based on how broadly you've categorized these things together, based on some of these things being permissible, we're going to therefore condone and tolerate what is not permissible. So then the pro-abortion, pro-death they say they're pro-choice, but they're really pro-death, pro-infanticide folks, will say that a woman having an ectopic pregnancy rupture and then undergoing emergency surgery to save her life and to remove the ovary, for one thing, but also this unborn child who has expired now, that is the same as some other woman just deciding she doesn't feel like raising a child right now. And so therefore, so she can finish her degree or she can 
pursue a high-powered career, make lots of money, keep traveling the world with her friends. Therefore, she's going to go and get an elective abortion, quote-unquote, for the life of the mother. And what we mean by that is for the lifestyle of the mother, not because her life is in danger, strictly speaking, but because her lifestyle is in danger. And the pro-death folks want to package those things together and say, it's none of our business. Oh, no, no, no. No, in pagan child sacrifice rituals, what was their motive for offering up children? I and mean, adults too, but children would be offered up in exchange for some blessing on an endeavor. The gods, more rightly demons, were being asked in exchange for this innocent blood being offered up to them. The demons were being asked to help supernaturally to bless the lifestyle of a person or a people. Bless our crops. Bless our armies in battle. Bless our weather. Bless our economy. And so I think what we can very easily do is draw a parallel to that in our day when there are individuals who want their lifestyle to be blessed. They want to finish their degree and get a good one and get good grades. And they want to pursue their career and have a good one and make lots of money. The intention is the same, whether or not they have Molech in mind specifically is immaterial. Although I would point out the Satanists are active in the United States of America right now. Literally, they announce themselves as Satanists and they have opened up abortion clinics and said, because we are Satanists, we are for legalized abortion. And so increasingly, we actually do have an embracing of offering up our unborn children, our innocent lives as part of a blood magic ritual, a demonic service, literally to Satan. We have increasingly an embrace of that because people prefer actual literal Satanism to Christians saying, don't do this thing. This is an evil thing. Don't do this thing. But regarding punishments for sexual immorality, I mean, we have very clearly the death penalty prescribed by God for those who offer up their children to Molech. And I would say, if it's murder, the pro-life, supposedly pro-life crowd needs to get with the program on what the ramifications are instead of trying to have it both ways, where they essentially want no penalty for the mother or for a father who would try and get his baby mama to go get an abortion. No penalties for them, only for the medical professionals who perform the abortion. Maybe. No, get with the program. If it's murder, it's murder. Some angry, spurned woman hires a hitman to kill her ex-boyfriend or her ex-husband. We don't say we're only going to punish the hitman. We say, no, that woman is guilty of attempted murder. And if she actually is successful or the hitman she hires is actually successful, we say that that woman is guilty of murder. The fact that she's a woman or that she was scared or that she might have had supposedly honorable and other circumstances, totally normal ambitions here is totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter. 
She has blood on her hands. He has blood on his hands. Innocent blood. And the penalty for murder is death. So that you don't have more and more murder. And the penalty for a people turning a blind eye to murder is also very severe. And it comes directly from God. God judges peoples. When a people stops punishing murder and rape and every other kind of violence that people perpetrate against each other, when a people, when a nation turns a blind eye to that, normalizes it, or even codifies it, God himself will oppose that people, that nation. God himself will punish that nation and that people. And we don't want to be there, folks. We don't want to be there. That's not a happy place to be. We want to be holy, for he is holy. We want to humble ourselves before the Lord because there's a blessing in that. But switching gears here a little bit. I got an email from The Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro specifically at The Daily Wire, talking about SatanCon 2023, which is a, as you would imagine, convention for Satanists, and how SatanCon 2023 kicked off this week. You might think, well, whatever. So what? Who cares? Some people are weird. They're not serious. I don't think they're serious. Surely not. But if the number of Satanists is growing, and also if it just so happens that Satanists are marketing themselves as pro-Democrat Party, and they just so happen to be for all of the things that the Democrat Party is for, that should tell us something. The Democratic Party is not. You can't make a good case anyways. You might be able to claim it, but you can't defend it. The Democratic Party is not God and country. The Democratic Party is increasingly out and out aligned with everything that God hates. They are for normalizing everything that God forbids. They are for celebrating everything that God condemns. They are for going after Christians in particular who say, repent, turn back. No, don't do this thing. This is an evil thing. The Democratic Party is increasingly, as Ben Shapiro points out here, aligning itself with Satanism. And the Satanic movement is increasingly aligning itself with the Democratic Party. And who could have predicted that? Who could have imagined that this is where it would go? And where will it go from here? But as Ben Shapiro writes, I'll read this for you. It's worth noting that the number of Satanists worldwide is increasing. That's indicative of something, at the very least. The Satanic Temple, the group behind SatanCon, apparently has about 700,000 registered members at this point. According to statistics published by the Pew Research Center, Satanists have reached a new membership milestone, ranking the Satanic Temple ahead of worldwide numbers of Rastafari and just under Unitarian Universalism. The Satanic Temple says they don't actually believe in a spiritual Satan, the supernatural being in a traditional Christian theology. But as you'll soon note, the crossover between the fundamental tenets of the Satanic Temple and the fundamental tenets of left-wing liberalism at this point are almost indistinguishable. Here are the names of some of the events at SatanCon 2023. He writes, Deconstructing Your Religious Upbringing with Judas Marduk, Atheistic Strategies for Self-Determining and Empowerment, Reimagining Lilith as an archetype for reproductive justice, sins of the flesh, 
Satanism and Self-Pleasure from Dr. Eric Sprinkle, and Reclaiming the Trans Body. Does that sound familiar? Some of that you might have to squint and you might have to understand a little bit of the backstory on. Lilith, for instance, we'd have to talk, if you're not familiar with Lilith, we'd have to talk a bit more about who she is, according to myth and legend. But some of this, it's not hard at all. It's not difficult at all to know exactly what they're talking about and also to recognize that the Democratic Party is championing these things and trying to get your children to embrace them as a new definition of good. But then we have to understand that at root, what is being debated? What is being tried and fought over? What is the struggle here is on the one hand, we define good whatever we want and we define evil whatever gets between us and what we want. That's the left's view of good and evil. Whatever I want is good. Whatever stands between me and what I want is bad, is evil. And if it's a person, well, then I'll say that they're mentally ill unless they prove that they have a sound mind, in which case I'll switch gears and I'll say that they're malicious. And by malicious, we should understand this is ascribing evil intent to the person who would say, no, don't do that. Which is to say, increasingly, the portrayal is that conservatives who say, no, that's objectively wrong, that's objectively false, that's objectively bad, are, by the left's way of thinking and reasoning, if you can call it that, more rightly feeling, conservatives are evil. Not just that we disagree, but conservatives are evil according to the left. And vice versa, to be consistent, we have to say, at a certain point, it's not just that the left is mistaken about this or that and just slightly off kilter or, yeah, we disagree, but who can know? Conservatives have to say at a certain point, all of the intentions of their platform politically or socially or culturally or academically are evil continually. All of their thoughts and intentions are evil continually. And therefore, not just that the fruit is evil, but that the tree is evil. A good tree does not bear bad fruit. And if all of the fruit of the tree of leftism is evil, then at a certain point, you just say that the left is evil. Like Tucker Carlson said the same weekend that he was let go at Fox News or his show, his very, very popular, most popular show on cable news was abruptly canceled by Fox News. At a certain point, you have to say the left is evil and what they want is evil and what they're willing to do to get what they want is evil. And then the question is, are we as conservatives actually conserving what is good? And how can we know? That's a very important epistemological question. More importantly, it's a very important theological question. How can we know whether what it is that we are wanting is good objectively. And if it's not, if we're not sure, well, then why are we trying to conserve it? What we don't want to do is get very myopic and say, well, this has been the tradition for 20 years, so therefore that's what we want to conserve. We want to keep things the way that they have been. No, no. If you're going to actually be successful and if God is going to actually bless you, you have to be conserving what is objectively good according to God. Otherwise, you're just going back in time and we're going to play Groundhog Day. 
with these evil fruits. As Ben Shapiro sums up the SatanCon 2023 events, these translate to why religion is terrible, the joy of transgenderism, hedonism and masturbation, abortion, the happiest sacrament, and the fulfillment of racial intersectionality. If we don't recognize that these things go together as a package deal because their epistemology and their theology are contrary to, at war with Christ first and foremost, but therefore by extension Christians. If we don't recognize that, then we won't know what to do about it. We won't know how to defend ourselves against it. We won't know how to defend our family and our friends against it. We won't know how to effectively counter it or even just stand up in the day of trial and adversity when this is our trial. Someone to not emulate, for instance, would be KISS star Paul Stanley. And I just recently shared with you a quote of something he tweeted out where he was being critical, agreeing with criticism of the transgender moment, particularly where it's targeting children. He took a lot of flack for that and so therefore reversed course Thursday. Here's a quote reported on by Daily Wire News. While my thoughts were clear, my words clearly were not. Most importantly and above all else, I support those struggling with their sexual identity while enduring constant hostility and those whose path leads them to reassignment surgery. It's hard to fathom the kind of conviction that one must feel to take those steps. A paragraph or two will remain far too short to fully convey my thoughts or point of view, so I will leave that for another time and place. In other words, people got angry, people got upset, he was threatened, he was abused, and so now he's apologizing. Mea culpa, mea culpa. But he's not repenting to God, and he's certainly not repenting along the lines of God's categories of good and evil. So is he standing firm? Certainly not. But if we want to do better, we're going to have to have the Lord's strength. We're going to have to stand firm in our convictions. And you know what? One thing that really helps in that regard is, one, reading your Bible. Two, getting on your knees, praying regularly to God, asking God for strength, asking God for wisdom, asking God for grace, asking God's forgiveness when we've sinned against God, first and foremost. Asking that God would help us to know what is true and what is good and think on those things. And then besides that, getting plugged into a church where you're going to be encouraged and built up along those lines. Are there churches that are as bad or worse than just staying home and reading your Bible? Absolutely. Certainly. But look carefully and pray for wisdom in that regard as well, that God would provide you with a community of believers who are building you up, not tearing you down towards love and good deeds, towards holiness, because God is holy. Don't hold your breath if a celebrity speaks out and says X, Y, and Z, that's not a firm foundation to build your convictions on. If a celebrity comes out and they say something conservative or they are critical of the evil and the depravity that we're seeing increasingly normalized, great. I'm not saying it means nothing, but we can't build our life on that because they could just as easily tomorrow recant all of it because what they care more about is their career. And then they realize, they thought, well, maybe it's safe to say this thing. Maybe I'll score points. And then they get backlash and they say, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, no. 
Another example, though, of a celebrity, and this one I think will stick to his guns better than the Kiss Rocker, who was a little bit self-defeating as it was anyways, just with some of the antics of prominent rock bands from the last several decades. They have contributed to this moment that we're in. And if they're really consistent, they're going to go away sad like the rich young man who comes to Jesus asking what he must do to be saved. It goes away sad because Jesus says, sell all that you have and give the proceeds away to the poor. He had a lot to lose. He went away sad because he chickened out. He got cold feet. I want eternal life, but not right now. Not if it means giving up my wealth and my property. But here's Monty Python alumni John Cleese going viral, as they say tweeting about the, quote, unfair advantage, end quote, biological males have in women's sports after a transgendered athlete recently won in the female category of a cycling race in the UK. And what he said is actually not all that wild. It's not as though he wrote some hate-filled tirade against transgendered people. All he said was biological men have an unfair advantage in women's sports. That's all. Lots of people will agree, but if they don't have the good Lord's strength, if they're not building their life on the rock, what happens to their house when the winds and the rains come? When the storm starts battering that house, if they're built on sand, which is what you get, you you are building on sand. If you're building your life based on public opinion, All these little grains of sand are not going to hold your structure up when the storm comes. But let's do lighten the mood just a little bit. I'm going to play a clip from Monty Python's The Life of Brian. And this actually features John Cleese. So here we have from several decades ago, some of what he and his comedic troupe had to say about this idea of men wanting to be women. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. I do feel, Reg, that any anti-imperialist group like ours must reflect such a divergence of interest within its power base. Agreed, Francis. Yeah, I think Judith's point of view is very valid, Reg, provided the movement never forgets that it is the unalienable right of every man or woman or woman to rid himself or herself or herself. Agreed. Thank you, brother. Or sister. Or sister. Where was I? I think you finished. Oh, right. Furthermore, it is the birthright of every man or woman. Why don't you shut up about women, Stan? You're putting us off. Women have a perfect right to play a part in our movement, Reg. Why are you always on about women, Stan? I want to be one. What? I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. Well, why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies. Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus going to gestate? You're going to keep it in a box? Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. 
Sister, sorry. What's the point? What? What's the point of fighting for his right to have babies when he can't have babies? It is symbolic of our struggle against oppression. Symbolic of his struggle against reality. And cut. <laughs> I am not going to say, oh, those were the good old days. Because they weren't, right? They weren't the good old days. But I will say this, that if not for thousands of years of recorded history featuring that mindset of it's symbolic of your struggle against reality, no, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. No, no, you can't. You're not able to. No, you don't have a right to that. What's the point of having a right to do something you can't do? Thousands of years of people believing that is why we're here today. If for thousands of years it had been this functional thing where the norm was homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, we wouldn't be here. We just wouldn't. So these are sterile ideas. These are anti-human ideas. These are pro-death ideas. These are ideas that come straight from the father of lies himself who hates humanity because humanity, God made in his image, male and female. Satan hates human beings, hates mankind, hates God, but hates mankind, hates sex, hates the family. And we need to know that. We need to understand that when we come to these debates in our day, which are purportedly political, but they're actually not first and foremost political. They're first and foremost epistemological, but even before that, they're theological. But this is not just taking shape in pop culture or in the legislatures or in the courts of law. The University of Texas wants students and faculty to use the word women, so they can avoid using a word ending in men. They are spelling this W-I-M-M-I-N, women, weaning, a non-standard spelling, is how this is defined, of the word women used by feminists to avoid the word ending men. Yes, I did say this is from the University of Texas. Supposedly, this is empowering to weaning. So there's a hatefulness to it to say we hate men so much. We want to spell what we call females of the species differently so as to even there deny that men are closely related or necessary. It's absurd. You can't have women without men. And you can't have men without women. I mean, you can for a short time, but again, that's a sterile view of humanity. It will not last. You can't have reproduction. You can't have future generations. Why would you even want that though, right? To want that, to want a society of only women or a society of only men is to say that there's a hatefulness towards the other half of humanity. And when that hatefulness is embraced rather than repented of, it leads to death. It leads to collapse. 
Shame on the University of Texas for promoting this. Austin, Texas. Now, here's a quote from UT explaining why this glossary of woke terms exists. Quote, having a common language for talking about and across difference is important for mutual understanding and partnership. The language of diversity is evolving and requires awareness, understanding, and skill. This glossary, though not exhaustive, is a tool to give you the words and meanings to help make conversations easier, respectful, and empowering. I would say it's just the opposite. You're actually showing a tremendous lack of respect for men here. And women, in some sense, are poorly served just as badly as the men are poorly served because you're saying instead of, hey, women, maybe try not hating men so much that you want to change the spelling of what you call yourselves. But of course, not all women are like this. Not all men are like this. And we have to know why we should disagree with it and say no. Alex Nitzberg over at theblaze.com reported May 2nd, Ivy League professor says it's bad science to define human sex as a binary based on sperm and ova production. Princeton University professor Augustin Fuentes wrote an opinion piece for Scientific American contending that it is bad science to suggest that human sex is a binary biological concept based on whether an individual produces male or female gametes. Quote, this is bad science. The production of gametes does not sufficiently describe sex biology in animals, nor is it the definition of a woman or a man. Fuentes wrote, quote, given what we know about biology across animals and in humans, efforts to represent human sex as binary based solely on what gametes one produces are not about biology, but are about trying to restrict who counts as a full human in society. And I'm going to call BS on that. When was the last time you looked up any animal which is sexually reproducing. Now, there are creatures, there are life forms that reproduce asexually, but let's just talk about the ones that reproduce sexually. When was the last time you looked up a species and saw a additional category besides male and female? You know, I've been playing this game, The Hunter, Call of the Wild, and I have yet to come across a non-binary animal in the game. And why is that? Is it because the game developers are ignorant bigots who are trying to deny the legitimacy of hermaphroditic deer and bears? Of course not. It's because you don't have bears or deer unless you have male bears and deer and female bears and deer and the two mate with one another. You don't have the furtherance of any of those species that reproduce sexually, which were designed by God to reproduce sexually. You don't have any more of them once they die out if you don't have the males and the females. And we don't get a third category just because sometimes weird things happen with genetics. Or what would we say if somebody's born without certain vital organs and they don't survive? But a few short minutes after birth, we say, well, we're not going to describe those vital organs as necessary because we don't want to marginalize 
those who are born without those vital organs and only live for a few minutes. When we talk about lifespan, we don't want to say the typical lifespan is this many years or this many decades for this species because we don't want to marginalize the ones that are born without all the vital organs or with underdeveloped organs or organs that didn't develop in the proper way or in the proper place. So therefore, we're just going to say, ah, we, <clears throat> we don't know anything. This is anti-science. This is actually bad science, what this guy is peddling from Princeton University. But going back to children and what I think this is really all about and what I said earlier along the lines of good being defined as whatever we want, that's good. Evil being defined as whatever gets in the way of what we want, that's evil. The Daily Wire News reports former DOD elementary teacher sentenced to life in prison for sexually abusing children as young as six. A 56-year-old elementary school teacher formerly employed by the Department of Defense Education Activity will spend the rest of his life behind bars for sexually abusing four students between six and eight years old. From 2001 to 2021, Stefan Zappi taught first through third grade at Patch Elementary, a school on a U.S. military base near Stuttgart, Germany. Zappi was convicted by a federal jury in January of four counts of aggravated sexual abuse of a child and four counts of abusive sexual conduct, according to the Department of Justice. He was sentenced to life in prison on Tuesday. Quote, Zappi's offenses are especially egregious because he was entrusted with teaching the children of our brave service members overseas, said Kenneth Polite Jr., the assistant attorney general for the DOJ's criminal division. Quote, the courage of the victims and the perseverance of investigators and prosecutors ensured that Zappi's offenses were exposed and will prevent him from abusing even more children. Now, what we should understand is this is being challenged increasingly by the left. The idea that we would say what this teacher did was wrong is being challenged increasingly in our schools. The curriculum is increasingly trying to normalize pedophilia because, again, the common denominator is whatever I want is good. Whatever somebody else wants is good. Whatever gets in the way is bad, is evil. This is warped. It's perverse what the left is promoting in culture, in the academy, in government, and not just here, but around the world. The United Nations is even flirting with the idea of decriminalizing pedophilia around the world, promoting that. Even as in recent years, the UN has tried to champion children's rights to not be subjected to corporal punishment by their parents. That is discipline. If they misbehave, we want to have a bill of human rights for children, which essentially erases parents' ability to correct their children in a meaningful way. It erases the special responsibility, respecting the special responsibility parents have to discipline their children, to train them, to teach them, to raise them up in the way that they should go. The UN now is saying we need to decriminalize activity, sexual activity between adults and children. Again, as part of this push for saying it's a child's human right. This is in the United States known as comprehensive sex education. It is in American public schools. Peter Hack wrote a piece about this just yesterday. 
titled, Yes, Legalized Pedophilia is Where This All Leads. He writes, amid all the talk about groomers, drag shows for children, and sexual curriculum in elementary schools, there's one question that is arising consistently in conversations about the direction of our culture. Is the normalization of pedophilia the next step on society's descent down the ladder to moral oblivion? I admit to finding the question a little irrational given the degree to which children have already been sexualized in recent years. While every generation complains that the one that comes after it has pushed the provocative attire envelope too far, any objective lens reveals far more revealing clothing now being marketed to far younger clientele than ever before. This shift has been amplified tremendously by the advent and proliferation of social media apps that encourage sexting with the promise of anonymity. The American Journal of Psychiatry revealed in a recent study that over a quarter of children in their early teenage years have sent nude images of themselves, and that number climbs to 35% when asking who has received nude images of others. Continuing on down, he talks about the lawmaker in Minnesota named Lay Fink, transgender activist lawmaker, adding a provision to the state's omnibus bill that would have reclassified pedophilic attraction as a sexual orientation. That would mean legitimizing pedophiles, Peter Heck writes, as a legally protected minority alongside gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transgenders, and others. To be fair to think, his logic isn't flawed. Even if the act of child molesting is outlawed, who is allowed to morally discriminate against someone who is attracted to minors? We removed moral guideposts for things like romantic and sexual desires long ago. That was bigoted, remember? Again, Lay Fink isn't arguing that the conduct of pedophilia should be legal. He's arguing the people who are attracted to minors, quote, didn't choose their sexual identity, quote, were born that way, and, quote, should not be hated or ostracized for who they love, end quote. Sound familiar? Meanwhile, May Reed Elordi over at the Daily Wire, May 3rd, eighth graders had record low U.S. history civic scores in 2022. Eighth graders had the lowest U.S. history scores on record in 2022 and among the lowest civic scores the Department of Education revealed this week. The Education Department on Wednesday released the first federal history and civics testing data since before the COVID pandemic, the data shows that the last few years have erased the progress made since the 1990s on eighth grade students' knowledge of history and civics. Only about 13% of eighth graders met proficiency standards for U.S. history last year, according to the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also called the nation's report card. Proficient means students could explain major themes, periods, events, people, ideas, and turning points in the nation's history. Only 1% of students who took the test were rated as advanced in U.S. history, only about one-fifth of students were proficient or better in civics. In addition, last year, more students also performed below basic levels in both U.S. history and civics, the data shows. Four in 10 eighth graders scored below basic in history, while about 31% scored below basic in civics. And this bears out the little anecdote that Elon Musk shared with Bill Maher about somebody he knew asking a teenager if they knew who George Washington was or what they knew about George Washington. And all this teen, this American teen, could say was that George Washington owned slaves. They didn't know anything else. They didn't want to know anything else. They didn't need to know anything else according to the public schools. And this is why we homeschool. And that doesn't mean that my children know everything. Certainly not. It doesn't mean that I know everything. I want to talk about everything, but I don't know everything. 
My children don't know everything, but by golly, they know more than just that George Washington owned slaves. That's for sure. But again, as with the sexualization of children, the normalization of pedophilia, the championing of abortion, so also here, the curriculum, the pedagogy of government schools is driven by, it's fueled by this idea that what you want is what's good and what is good is what you want. Whatever gets in the way of that is evil. And so that's why the curriculum has been turned activist is because what the progressives who dominate the education system want, they define that as good. And they define good based on what they want. And if what they want is a communist utopia to replace America's constitution, if they want the American Republic to collapse so that they can bring about global communism, then it's useful to highlight certain things just like Howard Zinn would have and to downplay or not even mention at all, just to memory hole whatever might cause admiration, hesitation, respect, or a protective response with regards to what's been passed down to us, what our legacy is as Americans, what our heritage is, what our inheritance is. For this reason, I recently read To Kill a Mockingbird. In fact, I finished it up this morning and it was brilliant. Five out of five stars, if you ask me. We watched the film starring Gregory Peck last night as a family and we were really surprised, my wife and I, how it held the attention of even our younger children. But I thought to myself, as we were watching the movie and as our oldest two are going to be reading this book for school this coming school year, you know, I found myself thinking about how the scenes in the trial are laid out and how you have the subject matter being a claim of rape the accused being a black man, the alleged victim being a white woman, you have this claim of rape being tried and you have some conversation about what actually happened and the judge telling one witness in particular, we will confine our talk in this courtroom to what would be appropriate to a Christian. There are women and children present. You need to speak appropriately. We also have various instances of characters objecting that certain things are being spoken about in front of children or in front of Scout, Jean-Louise Finch, which she probably shouldn't be hearing. She's a young girl. She, she doesn't need to be hearing about this. It might have a bad effect. Now think about all the ugliness that we see in this story based in Makem, Alabama, which if you look it up on Google, what shows is Monroeville, where Harper Lee, the author, was born and lived and died. Monroeville, Alabama is an hour and a half north of Milton, Florida, where my mom was from. But think about all the ugliness of various racist characters, some blacks, some white, mostly white, but all of that ugliness that we look back on and we think, man. How were they so blind to the evil they were doing to each other, to the evil way they were 
treating each other. How could they be so blind to how awful that would look? How awful it was in the present. Of course, this is a fictional story, but it captures the sentiment of what actually happened, what actually played out in little towns in the South and in the North, unfortunately, but especially in the South. How did the people who were talking this way, treating each other this way, based on differences of skin color, being willing to miscarry justice, supposedly for the sake of the greater good, how could they be so blind to the evil that they were doing? And the answer to that question is actually found in our day, because even though the particulars are different, there's no new thing under the sun. What we're seeing right now with the woke moment is just a mutated strain of the same ugliness, the same ignorance, the same corruption, the same malice, the same evil. We have to recognize that it's an evil thing when somebody is accused of a crime they didn't commit and found guilty because that is regarded as more important to the life of the community than acquitting them. You know, in the case of Tom Robinson, of course you know, of course you know, he should have been acquitted. He should have been declared not guilty by the jury because the standard is the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he actually did commit this crime. It would be unreasonable for you to doubt it, in other words, based on the preponderance of the evidence. And as Atticus Finch, the defense attorney, state-appointed defense attorney, white man, as he makes very clear, there is an alternative explanation for what actually happened, which is far more plausible given the character of the alleged victim and, more to the point, the character known by all in the county of her father. And the jury is out for hours, not to spoil anything, not to give anything away. They're out for hours, and it's seen as progress that it took them hours to decide what otherwise in many other cases, would have taken them a mere minutes. It would have taken them mere minutes to resolve. And in fact, even before the case has gone to trial, just the fact that this is a black man who's accused of having had carnal knowledge of a female against her will by force, even just that is enough to have a whole bunch of men in the county showing up at the jail wanting to dispense with Mr. Tom Robinson and put him to death. And what do we find in our day? We find the other side of the coin where anybody who is not woke, anybody who's not progressive, anybody who is a conservative or their intersectionality is straight white male, Christian, Republican. If they're accused, we want to know right now that they've been destroyed. We can't wait. Can't wait for due process. Can't wait for the facts to come in. Can't wait to get their side of the story. In fact, we've already condemned them just on hearing that they're accused. We need know nothing more. And why? Because again, what's promoted just like it was in the Deep South, in the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, what is at stake or is perceived to be at stake is the proper order of society, of our community the pecking order, even the most degenerate, low-class, bad character, worthless white person should be trusted 
before we trust the most virtuous, upstanding, honorable, innocent of black men, in the case of Harper Lee's novel. And in our day, even the most vile, vicious, degenerate, perverse, worthless, woke person is to be trusted over the most upstanding, honorable, decent, innocent of conservative. And why? Because what's in view is the proper pecking order of society as the left sees it. Don't get confused and think these are totally opposite things because back then it was an innocent black man who was being found guilty of a crime he didn't commit or which he shouldn't have been found guilty of based on the preponderance of the evidence. It was pretty clear that Atticus Finch's theory, his alternative explanation, was the correct one for what actually happened. But we have two sides of the same coin, I say, in this day with the woke business. And it is the opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. was communicating in his I Have a Dream speech. His dream, I agree with, that men and women and children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And yet the content of our character to the left, which is increasingly satanic, the content of our character is determined by our intersectionality. Or it is determined by whether you are going to help me to get what I want or whether you're going to tell me no on some of these things because they're objectively evil or that's objectively false. That's objectively corrupt what you want. I'll tell you, Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird is my hero. I have half a mind, if Lauren would be agreeable to it, half a mind to name this next child due in November Atticus, if it's a boy. If we have a boy, this child is a boy. We don't know yet. It's too early to tell. My wife suspects that it's a girl we're expecting, but we'll see. But either way, Atticus Finch is remarkable. He's threatened. He doesn't expect to win. And yet he defends this black man all the more rather than less. Because justice is not served if we allow innocent people to be destroyed just to save our own skins, just to protect ourselves. That's not serving justice. When the community around him, when his own friends and family and neighbors start calling him ugly things to his children as a way of trying to get him to stop it, as a way of trying to get back at him, because by contrast, they all of a sudden are feeling very insecure about their own moral content, their own character, their own courage, their own integrity. When all of a sudden Atticus, by defending this black man vigorously, is threatening the social order, social justice, if you will, what does he do? He keeps right on. Stays calm, tells his kids, don't get into fights about that. Stays the course. Does it anyways. Why? Because he wants to be able to sleep at night. Because he wants to be able to hold his head high and still have self-respect and a good conscience at the end of the day. And more of us need to be of that mindset. But it only happens. It only is possible if our standard of goodness is fixed and comes from God himself, who does not change. There is no shadow of turning with thee, the hymn sings. 
James writes, God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is led away and enticed. Be cheerful. If you're being tested and tried in these days, be cheerful and be sober. Don't go in with the many and so pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor man and don't defer to the great. Be holy for I am holy, God says, in the context of how you administer justice. True justice, God defines. The community doesn't define what true justice is, but the community will be held responsible for either carrying out justice or miscarrying justice. And yes, we should love mercy, but it is not a mercy when we call evil good and good evil or exchange bitter for sweet. That is not mercy. That is not grace. And you can't do that and then just say, grace, grace, pour grace on it. No. Be holy for I am holy, declares the Lord our God. And he says that in the Old Testament to his people Israel. He says it in the New Testament to his people, the church, Jew and Gentile. If you are in Christ, you are called to this and it's a non-negotiable. And if you want to deny it, you might just be one who hears, depart from me. I never knew you on the last day. Yeah, I was just explaining this to a group of middle school girls on Wednesday night. I was one of the discussion leaders for our youth group. It was our last such regular session for this school year, this past Wednesday night. And I just so happened to get a circle of probably a dozen or more middle school girls. Starcraft, thankfully, one of the women in our church, Mrs. Craft, sat in with the group, which I was thankful for. I am not a middle school girl. <laughs> I have one daughter and seven sons. I have more perhaps in common with Mrs. Craft, because at least we are both adults and we can have a conversation about Acts chapter 28. And she helped to bridge some of the gaps there with the young ladies. And I caught some of her glances. I'll, I'll be honest, some of her glances when I would ask a question that these middle school girls would just go off on tangents and start gaggling about, giggling about. She would make a little bit of a face like you should probably rein this in, which was also probably correct. She was probably correct there. <laughs> oh, you just opened up a can of worms. I could almost hear her thinking. <laughs> But I was explaining to these young ladies, you have, in the case of the Apostle Paul, going to Rome, appealing to Caesar. When he gets there, calling for the leading men of the Jews who are in Rome, so he can tell them about Jesus. And this is to fulfill what is written in the scriptures. And when he tells them about Jesus, the Messiah, they get into something of a argument with each other about it. And then they just kind of wander off. There's an indifference. There's an apathy. There's kind of a smug condescension towards Paul from some of them. And Paul quotes Isaiah, the prophet, about how even though you have eyes, you don't see. Even though you have ears, you don't hear. And God has actually hidden some of these things from you because if you would see it, if you would hear it and understand you would turn from your sins, but such as it is, this gospel is going to go to the Gentiles now. And that will provoke you to jealousy. 
because you'll realize, hey, that's actually my inheritance. And so we see even in the New Testament, racism, if you will, or a racial prejudice, if you will, or racial pride, if you will, certainly, we certainly see that. And yet, what does God not do? He doesn't say, oh, that's fine. And what is the response of God's faithful servant? It's not to say, this is the be-all, end-all, and we can't talk about anything else. We can't deal with anything else. We can't even function until we have purged racism entirely, 100% from society, from everybody in our midst, because that's not reasonable, because it's not feasible. Only God can do that. But what is done instead? God uses his people and calls them to holiness and commands them to express his justice, his mercy, his goodness, his greatness with impartiality. We see that in Leviticus. We see it in James. Don't be partial towards the poor or the rich. Don't go in with the many. Don't spread a false report. Also, you don't have permission to just sit on the sidelines, keep it to yourself. If you know that an innocent man has been accused of a crime he didn't commit, and you can speak up to make sure that he is cleared instead of condemned. Or if you see a guilty man who's about to be exonerated falsely of a crime that he did commit. No, no. Even if it's just you turning a blind eye and pretending you didn't know, pretending you didn't see that, pretending that's none of your business, God says otherwise. And for the Christian, we have to understand that God's grace and his justice are not at odds with each other. God's justice will be served ultimately on individuals and peoples and nations and on the whole world, but so also will his mercy be poured out for those who are in Christ. May we be found in Christ. That's the big idea. Race is no excuse for miscarrying justice. Age is no excuse for miscarrying justice. Not according to God. Socioeconomic status is no excuse for miscarrying justice. Whether you're more severe or you're too lenient. It's both alike a problem to God. Injustice. So I recommend to you to kill a mockingbird. I recommend it. I do. I don't think that conservative Christian parents should avoid this book just because there's talk of rape accusations. I think that's not a good idea. Uh, also, too, I think for the woke folk and even just those of us who are very concerned, very worried about wrong speak words that we're not supposed to say cropping up in this book. Ooh, I don't know if I want my kids to read that because they mark, they, they, they're going to see and hear the N word. And I, I, what if they say it when they're quoting the book? What if they, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. Understand this. Our history is at stake. This is why we're changing up our homeschool curriculum for the coming school year, because the previous Christian homeschooling curriculum, free Ambleside online was going down the path of let's edit words out of books that were written a hundred years ago to make them more palatable. And I say, no, that's not okay. Enough with the historical revisionism. That's toxic. God doesn't do that in his word. We shouldn't be doing it with our own history and with one another's works. It's a dangerous, dangerous, slippery slope. You don't have to use those words that are found in this book. You don't have to talk the way that they talked a hundred years ago, but 
we should read them in their own words. I insist. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. Speaking of words, in our own words, in their own words, I gotta run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.